please do open your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Ruth is a short four-chapter story in the Old Testament, and we are not going to read all of it, but I will tell the whole story, so it will help if you have it open in your lap. We're in a Christmas series called The Mothers of Jesus, and we're looking at four different women who played significant roles in the Christmas story, even though all told they lived thousands of years apart from each other. Christmas was a long time coming. So make your way to Ruth, and with Bibles open on our laps, let's just take a quick moment to ask the Lord to give us open eyes and ears as well. Pray with me one more time. Father, we do... With our Bibles open, we ask that you would do something that we can't actually uh, accomplish quite so simply, and ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears, open our hearts to receive your word. Um, give me helpful words to say. Help us all listen to your spirit as we go. May this all be to the glory of Christ. Amen. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Those words were spoken a long time ago in a land far away, a town called Bethlehem, by a woman who had seen more than her fair share of hardship and heartache. I'd imagine there was some point in her life where The view looked a bit better, maybe involved some joy, some hope for the future, some light, but not anymore. Not since everything came crashing down on her. A series of unfortunate events, you might say. A run of really bad luck. Or bleaker yet, you could say, that's just life. Life in a meaningless, random, cruel world. Or, like this woman, you might just say, God hates me. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. These are the words of one heartbroken woman spoken a long time ago, but these words are certainly not only her words. These words have been uttered countless times. They've been thought silently more than that. I wouldn't be surprised if some in this room have thought or said something like that and even believed it deep down. You look at your life, maybe it had a promising start. Maybe it was tragic from the beginning. But from where you sit now, All you can conclude is God must hate me. My life is ruined. Now, I realize that when we start to talk about ruined lives, there's a wide range of what might constitute a ruined life. I've known teenagers. An ill-timed pimple can be sufficient evidence that God is out to get you. 
fact, I was in high school once myself. It's true. When I was in high school, um, I used to cut my own hair. Still do. <laughs> I used to cut my own hair, and we had these um, we had these fancy clippers that you might see at Supercuts, which is where I would often uh, where I'd go once in a while. But we had these fancy clippers. You know, you put the guard on the blade so you can adjust it to whatever uh, length you want your to be cut, and so I knew what I was doing. You just got to get enough mirrors in the right place, and I'm good to go. And and so there was this one day in high school when uh, I'm standing in front of the mirror, and I put the blade guard on to the perfect length to get the perfect cut. And uh, I remember reaching back behind my head to take that first wonderful stroke. And right before I did it, I heard something hit the floor. Um, but I, but I went ahead anyways with my first stroke. <laughs> and, then, and then I saw something else hit the floor. It was a surprisingly large chunk of beautiful blonde hair. Thick blonde hair, mind you. And I had a skin streak, about a four-inch skin streak on the back of my head. And... May I remind you, this is in the middle of high school. The single most important days of my entire life. And so, uh, after the dizzy dizziness wore off and I cleaned up my vomit, I remember <laughs> crawling my way out to my mother to uh, let her in on the obvious news that my life was over. My life was ruined. Just imagine if I would have known how much scalp I'd be flaunting 25 years later. (laughs) Oh, dear. I'm not sure that I immediately blamed the Almighty in that moment. Although I, I do think that I had an underdeveloped doctrine of God's sovereignty at the time. But I knew something as a high schooler of a ruined life. So trust me, teenagers, I understand ruined lives. But if you'd told me that day in high school that I'd actually walk through deeper, darker times than Scalpgate 98, I'm not sure I would have believed you. But the truth is that life has gotten harder. Darkness and brokenness have settled deeper into my own life, and I know that the same is true for all of us here. And I tease you teenagers, but I know that some of you have walked through significant hardship and heartache already from a young age. So whether you're young or old, when hardship and heartache strike, it can be very easy and even very reasonable seeming to draw the conclusion that the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with you. That God must hate you, or maybe for some, that God must not even be there. And little by little, as we walk through hardship and heartache, our hearts can grow bitter toward God for His seeming bitterness towards us. 
This is not only one woman's story, is it? But the Old Testament book of Ruth offers us a different path. A different way to interpret the hardships and heartaches of our lives. A pathway out of the bitterness, if you've already gotten there. Or a pathway away from bitterness, if you haven't yet gotten there. So I invite you to consider it with me as we walk through this four-chapter account. So read with me the opening words of Ruth. I'll put it up on the screen. Uh, You can look in your lap or look on the screen. Ruth 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. These were dark days, not just for one woman, but for a whole nation of people. The very first words make that clear. Look back. In the days when the judges ruled. If you've ever read the book of Judges, which in our Bibles comes right before the book of Ruth, you might remember the familiar refrain of that book. In fact, if you flip back one page you can read the very last words of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the setting. These were brutal days for the offspring of Abraham, who we saw last week was promised he would be the father of a great nation who would be God's people known as the people of Israel, named after Abraham's eventual grandson. But now years later, the people of Israel are stuck in a cycle of faithlessness, lawlessness, godless living, and these are dark days for everyone. But these were dark days for one very specific woman that we just read about. Her name was Naomi. She's a woman from the little town of Bethlehem. Do you guys know what the, the, the name Bethlehem means? House of bread. How's that for a bleak opening to the story? There is no bread in the house of bread. There's a famine in the promised land, which is a sign of God's judgment against his people for how they're living. And famine is supposed to be a wake-up call for God's people to turn from their sins and return to the Lord. But Naomi's husband does the opposite. 
he runs further. And he takes his family into the land of their enemies, Moab, and they settle down there. And then while they're there, Naomi's husband dies. Her two sons marry Moabite women, which is a no-no. Then her sons die, and Naomi's left with two widowed daughters-in-law who are Moabites, not Israelites. Naomi has lost everything. Her husband, her sons, her home, her people, and probably goes without saying, her hope. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It's kind of hard to hold those words against her, isn't it? What we just breeze through in one paragraph represents at least a decade of hardship and heartache. You look at Naomi's life and you'd have a hard time arguing with her that her conclusion is wrong. But of course, we're still in chapter one. Let me tell you what happens from here. The next thing we're told is that one day Naomi is working out in the fields of Moab when she just so happens to hear that the Lord has brought an end to the famine in Bethlehem. And so she decides she's going to go home. Now, at first, her two daughters-in-law decide that they will go with her, but Naomi quickly writes that off as a ridiculous plan. She says something to this effect. Do I have sons in my womb that can grow up and become your husbands? And even if I got married today, would you wait around for them to grow up so you could marry them? She says, of course not. Go home, get married, and try to salvage a life for yourselves. So one daughter-in-law named Orpah agrees with the logic, decides to cut her losses, kisses her mother-in-law, and goes back home. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, we're told, clings to Naomi and says this, verse 16. Ruth says, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is a tenacious young woman. She clings to her mother-in-law and won't let go until death do they part. Maybe more surprising than Ruth's commitment to Naomi is her commitment to Naomi's God. Think about it. Ruth is a Moabite, which means she hasn't grown up worshiping Naomi's God. I don't know how much Naomi or her son had told Ruth about the Lord their God, but we do know she has at least watched as that very God let Naomi's husband die, let her own husband die, let her brother-in-law die, and leave this poor 
Israelite widow with nothing. We know that much. Ruth watched that happen. That's the God that Ruth is choosing. What's up with that? We don't know much else about Ruth's background except that she's a Moabite, which the author emphasizes every chance he gets. And so when Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem together, we're told that the whole town is stirred up over them. People are shocked that Naomi is back after all these years, and they're all the more shocked that the only person she has with her is a Moabite widow. Not exactly a triumphal reentry. And this is the point when Naomi tells her friends, Naomi, who, which the name Naomi means pleasant, she tells her friends, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, because Mara means bitter. And the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Hardship and heartache are no longer simply part of Naomi's experience. They've become her identity. I went away full, she says, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That's what she says to her friends. So when Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem, the barley harvest has just begun, and that's good news for everyone, and it's very good news for two poor, hungry women. Because the law of Israel just so happens to look out for people like them. Because long ago when Moses gave, uh, when God gave Moses the laws to govern his people in the promised land, there was a law that you can go back and read in Leviticus 19 that says that when the time comes to harvest your crops, don't pick up every last scrap of food. Leave some behind so that the poor can follow after you and be fed. It's a law. So Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, let me go out into the fields and see if anyone will be kind enough to let this Moabite pick up their scraps. So Ruth goes out into the fields, and then in chapter 2, verse 3, she just so happens to come to the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be a relative of Naomi's late husband, Elimelech. And we're told that when Boaz finds out who Ruth is, when he sees her out in his field, we're told that he just so happens to have already heard the whole story about her loyalty to her mother-in-law and her kindness to Naomi, and he immediately decides to take her under his wing. He says, Ruth, don't go to anyone else's field. We'll take care of you right here. You're under my protection and provision starting now. And then here's Ruth's reply in Ruth 2, starting at verse 10. It says, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings... You have come to take refuge. Boaz's heart has been moved by the story he heard about Ruth's loyalty 
to Naomi, and he seems to decide on the spot that he's going to be loyal to her in return. And then he prays the Lord, prays the Lord's blessing over her life. So Ruth goes home that night with weeks worth of food, we're told. And when poor, embittered Naomi sees Ruth lugging all that grain to the door, she says, where in the world did you work today? And who do we have to thank? And Ruth replies, the man's name was Boaz. Let's pause for a second. Have you ever had one of those moments, those disorienting moments when everything you thought you knew suddenly comes into question? Things that seemed super clear just a moment ago are all of a sudden blurry and confusing. Naomi is about to have one of those moments. She has settled in her heart that God can no longer be trusted to do right by her. She's changed her name. This is settled. And yet here comes Ruth, arms full of food and a story she can't believe. Some guy named Boaz helped me today. I don't know how much those words meant to Ruth, but to Naomi, those words fogged up the mirror real fast. Wait a second. I thought I was Mara. I thought God has forsaken me. What's going on here? So Naomi catches her breath and says, May this man be blessed by the Lord. This man whose field you just so happen to stumble into today, just so happens to be a very close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. Now here's why that's a big deal. Because there just so happens to be two laws given by God to Moses for situations like this. There's a law about land that says that when a family hits hard times and can't afford to live on their land anymore, a near relative can act as a redeemer. And at some point in the future, he's allowed to buy back that land from whoever owns it so that the land will ultimately remain in the family. And then there's a marriage law that says that when a woman's husband dies and, he, and she has no children, a near relative can marry the widow in order for her to have a child so that the family inheritance and the family name can continue on anyways. These laws reflected God's heart for his people, even in the midst of hardship and heartache. So when Naomi heard the name Boaz, she knew immediately this man could help us. And shockingly, at a time when everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes, he actually seems inclined to help them. Look at all that grain. Now the story goes that Ruth goes back to Boaz's field every day until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And it would seem that Naomi stays home every day and has a wrestling match in her heart. Maybe the Lord was there as well. 
could she possibly risk opening her heart to hope again? Could there possibly be more to the story than just the bitterness she's known? Could she really trust the Lord with her life? So when the harvest season finally comes to an end, Naomi is ready to take a tiny, trembling step of faith. Fighting every self-protective instinct in her, Naomi has a plan and she lays it before Ruth. She says, Ruth, the harvest is over. Why don't you go ask Boaz to marry you? As Americans, we think we're the normal ones. We think the way we do things is normal. Let's just establish that. When it comes to marriage proposals, we take a knee. We put the ring on the finger. We have our friends hiding in the bushes to video the whole thing because documenting all of life is the golden rule. This is normal to us. Well, I've decided to let you go home and read Ruth chapter 3, and you can read all about the proposal, the engagement, and you can come to whatever American conclusions you'd like in the comfort of your own home. It's not shady, it's just weird. But here's what we need to see together. Ruth the Moabite, bold and tenacious, makes her way to Boaz one night and says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is a beautiful proposal because you might remember that a few months ago when they first met, Boaz prayed a blessing over Ruth that she'd find refuge under the Lord's wings. Now months later, Here's Ruth imploring Boaz, spread your wings over me. Or we might say, be the answer to your own prayers. And Boaz is flattered. He receives it as kindness that Ruth would want to marry him instead of a younger man. There's a pretty large age gap between them. And Boaz says, I would be honored to marry you, Ruth, but legally... There's actually a closer relative than me who has the rights of first refusal. I'll go find him. And if he won't marry you, I will. Told you it's weird. So Ruth goes home that day, engaged to be married. She just doesn't know who the groom's going to be. Of course, Boaz sends Ruth home with another massive load of grain as an engagement present, I suppose. And the very next day, we're told that Boaz goes to make good on his promise. He goes and sits down at the city gate. And we're told that that nearer relative he was talking about just so happens to walk by. And Boaz is is a bit clever in his own right. He calls the relative over, asks him to sit down. And he tells him about Naomi's land and how it's up for sale. And how you're the closest relative, it's... It's yours if you want it. And in chapter 4, verse 4, Boaz basically says, I just thought you'd want to know. If you want to redeem it, go for it. If not, let me know, because I will. 
the unnamed relative says, I will. I will redeem the land. So Boaz says, great. I forgot to mention, if you buy the land, you also get the Moabite widow to be your wife. So that the name of her dead husband doesn't end here. And then there's a pause and this nearer relative says, I can't do that. I can't do that. That will mess up my inheritance. You go for it, Boaz. What the unnamed relative means by that is this is too risky for me. This is too sacrificial for me. You're asking me to pay my own money for land that would end up in Ruth's family anyways. I can't do that. Not interested. So Boaz goes home that day a happy man. After, of course, the whole sweaty sandal exchange ceremony, but what's the big deal with that? You can go home and read that on your own if you're somehow unfamiliar with very normal things. Let's read together how this story ends in Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And Naomi took the child laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. That qualifies as a happy ending. A far cry from where we began in chapter 1. The baby in Naomi's lap at the end of the story was a restorer of life to a woman who had known so much death. He represented hope that the family line would continue. And perhaps most of all, he gave evidence to one ordinary woman, despite all she'd seen, that perhaps she could trust the Lord after all. Here's the beauty of the book of Ruth. It's also ordinary. Nothing miraculous happens. Nobody's walking on water. No booming voices from the sky. Just ordinary, mundane life, much like our lives. Where hardship and heartache happen. Some days are surprisingly hard. Some days are surprisingly good wake up the next day and we do it all over again. But just because there's no big, loud, obvious miracle doesn't mean that God isn't entirely present and active in our ordinary up-and-down lives. Believing that would be a major mistake, and that would rob us of the hope that the book of Ruth is inviting us to grab hold of. The divinely inspired author of this book has one last treat for us. 
something that draws this whole story together to a breathtaking conclusion that explodes the whole story with meaning and might make you want to go back and reread the whole thing with new eyes to see what's invisible otherwise. Look back at verse 17 of chapter 4. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who would be the father of David. Ruth gave birth to a grandpa. A very important grandpa. King David's grandpa. Remember where this story started? In the days when the judges ruled, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Dark days. No bread in the house of bread. It's not only Naomi's life that's in shambles here. It's the whole big family of Abraham that was given this promise way back that they would be a blessing to the whole world and they'd be God's people. Sarah's laughter is long gone. You wouldn't be crazy to wonder if the whole thing is off entirely. How about the promise made to Eve that we looked at a couple weeks ago? That an offspring would come and stomp out the powers of darkness? All there is is darkness. Feels like a pipe dream. But look where the story ends. Baby Obed, son of a Moabite widow, grandfather of the great King David. This story's not over. God's on the move. It's not as if he just woke up and decided to do something. The whole story is full of God's little, seemingly unimpressive moves. Moving things one step at a time towards his designed end. And let's be clear, King David is not the end. King David himself is another step toward God's perfect end. Years later, King David would receive his own promise from God. That one day his own offspring would rule over his kingdom forever and there'd never need to be another king again. And the first words of our New Testament in the book of Matthew identify Jesus Christ as that promised offspring of David and Abraham. And then it goes into that famously long genealogy that runs from Abraham all the way to Jesus and it includes this unassuming Moabite widow named Ruth. Christmas is no accident. Christmas has been a long time coming. God so loved the world that he planned to send his one and only son. And he faithfully carried out that plan from Eve to Sarah to Ruth, to Mary, and every generation in between. And it all played out in thousands of tiny, unimpressive, 
ordinary ways. It's only when you can look backwards and say, oh, it just so happened. that you start to see God's fingerprints on every page. I want to assure you, brothers and sisters, that the same will be true of your story. Wherever you are in your story, whatever hardships and heartaches you've had to endure or still lie ahead, when your story is told, we will all smile at all that just so happens that we see. None of your suffering is random. None of it's meaningless. And though it probably will sneak up on you, it doesn't surprise God. None of it. You are living plan A of your life story. Do you know that? And your final destination according to God's word, is fullness of joy. There are hardships and heartaches in our lives that we would never choose for ourselves. We'd never choose for the people we love. And we'll walk through them, and we'll weep, and we'll hurt, and we'll lament, and we'll question, and usually won't get answers. We keep walking. Maybe it's more like limping. And we press on different than we once were. Irreversibly marked by the sorrow and pain. Changed maybe in ways we don't even realize. And then further down the road, other things happen. Things we might even be tempted to call good if we wouldn't feel guilty about it. the sorrow and the pain don't just disappear. We'll carry those the rest of the way. But as we keep going, we, we begin to see our lives a bit differently, a bit more clearly, as if maybe it's not really all about me. I'm just terribly afraid of what I don't know. It's not that I don't matter. Nothing could be further from the truth. But maybe there's a bigger story being told, and I'm just a small part of it. But there is an author, and he is wise, and he's good, and he's mysterious, and he's faithful, and he's masterfully and mercifully weaving together all of human history towards some unimaginably glorious finale or new beginning, if you could dare to believe it. And so you start to live your life differently. You start to see your pain differently. You start to see the bigger story, and instead of bitter, you become awestruck. Maybe a little silent. Maybe a little more surrendered to not my will, but yours be done. And we can be a little more still and know that He is God. And he is good. And 
his goodness and his mercy are in fact following us all the days of our lives, then you and I are going to be okay. Because like Ruth, those who make Naomi's God their God, Naomi's people their people, will find refuge in the shadow of the Almighty's wings. This has been the testimony of God's people down through the ages. Hardship and heartache will continue for a time, but for those who take refuge in the Lord and put their hope in Obed's greater grandson, Jesus Christ, hardship and heartache will not have the final word of their story. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me will not be your final conclusion, I promise you. If that feels hard to believe right now, just remember, we're still in chapter one. The book of Ruth gives us an excuse to trust God even when it doesn't seem like we should. Christmas does the very same thing. Even after that famine ended in Bethlehem, all the grain in the world couldn't solve the people's biggest problem. The famine out there was nothing compared to the famine in here. The sin inside that keeps us all on the run like a limelech, going from one place to another hoping to find life. But at the right time, About 2,000 years ago, God filled the house of bread with the kind of bread that gives eternal life. The baby in Bethlehem's manger would grow up and one day make this bold declaration. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Christians can't celebrate Christmas without the cross in view. Here is the ultimate antidote for every bitter thought, every bitter word, every bitter charge we could ever bring against God. God hasn't forsaken us. God hasn't left us to fend for ourselves in the face of hardship and heartache. To the contrary, the eternal Son of God put on a body and took our sorrows upon himself. And he carried them to the cross and he gave them an expiration date. And he said, come to me and find life. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, Jesus said, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. That's what we're doing each week when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Feeding on Jesus. Taking him at his word. Trusting in what he's done to restore us to life, to nourish our souls, to redeem us. If you're serving the Lord's Supper, would you make your way towards the front?